0: and welcome to the BBXX Podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to be your go-to resource for sexuality, intimacy, and communication to help you better understand yourself, the culture that has shaped you, and how to live deeper and more meaningful relationships as a result. Let's get intimate. In this episode, we speak with Caroline Heldman, professor of politics with a specialty in media, gender, and race, and the president of the Representation Project. We discuss the role of culture and the media in shaping our limited definitions of femininity and masculinity, the harm of gender roles, and the double-edged sword of social media. Thanks so much for being with us here today, Caroline. Really excited to chat more with you. I guess I'd love to just get started by having you give us a bit of background on how you came to be where you are today and what personal experiences have brought you there.
1: So uh, I'm the executive director of the Representation Project, which uses film and media in order to shift gender norms and damaging gender stereotypes. Uh, so our first film, Misrepresentation, looked at how women are represented in media, how they're objectified, how they're erased, um, how they're presented in very stereotypical ways that send girls and women really damaging messages. Um, a lot of those messages are that they that their bodies are the most important things about them, um, that that's where their self-worth and where their worth in society comes from, and also uh, messages that women aren't supposed to be in position of leadership they're not supposed to be in charge Um, so a lot of those damaging messages you know affect us um, especially when they enter our consciousness when we're very little and then our second film the mask you live in looks at how um, pressures to um, be a boy or a man and be very masculine are actually very damaging to boys and men. So men um, are taught that in order to be a real man, they have to be in control at all times. They have to be emotionally bereft, right? They have to, to um, separate their head and their heart, um, that they can't have emotions, that they can't show emotions. Um, and also that they have to use aggression or threat or force um, in order to maintain control. And so all of these messages end up Putting boys into what we call the man box, where um, they are very limited in terms of human expression. How important is this, and from both sides for you
0: know girls and women to understand the issues that men face and that you know the complicated factors of masculinity, um, and for on the other hand boys or men to not you know think oh well this is an episode since it's about girls and women for them versus no this is about culture and this is you know how important is it to understand underlying realities of what it is we're talking about and that people are going through
1: boys and men are not only taught to uh devalue feminine values i would argue that everyone is right So we as a culture don't actually value feminine values, men and women alike. Um, We don't value caring and empathy uh, to the extent that we should. I think that if we did as a culture, we would see very different public policies. uh, Because the way in which you know something is valued in a culture is if it's paid, at least in U.S. culture, right? So the way in which you value something in a capitalist society is that you Pay for it. So the higher the value, the more that that a culture places on something, the more that particular thing is paid. Um, so for example, um, you know, higher salaries are are a reflection of a, our value system. But also where our public dollars go, where politicians choose to allocate funds is a reflection of what we value as a society. So for example, US culture very clearly values the military because we spend more on our military uh, than than the next um, almost 40 countries combined. I mean it's it's a remarkable ratio right so we know what a culture values based upon where its money goes um, we don't value things like health care long-term care education we don't value things that we associate with being feminine um, and this is men and women alike anytime you have a, a social structure in place like our gender system or patriarchy where you value men more than you value women that's something that all of us uphold Uh, if 51% of the population, meaning women in the U S, uh, decided that they didn't uphold that system, it, it could possibly change pretty quickly. But at the end of the day, we, any system that's in place, that's been in place for a long time. And, and that is very dominant, um, like patriarchy, where you value boys and men more than you value girls and women and what they do. Um, it means that everybody is kind of holding that system in place. So we, as a culture, value masculine things much more than we value feminine things. And we know that because we just follow the money and see where it goes. And at the end of the day, it's a real shame because uh, men and women alike are empathetic men and women alike care uh, about caregiving um, and taking care of people. And yet because that's associated with femininity and what women do, it's simply not valued as much in our culture. So, and, and this has a lot to do, I think with, um, you know, to to wag a finger at uh, second wave feminists in the U.S. who really encouraged women to move into uh, masculine domains in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Um, So we had women moving into, you know, military positions, moving into education, moving into medicine, science, uh, moving into politics, but we didn't have the same uh, mirror value of getting men to move into the home, to value homemaking, to value caregiving, to value the raising of our children, to value education. So we have this big push To get women into masculinized domains, but we didn't have the same big push to get men to have the freedom to come into domains that were feminized. And so, you know, men who want to be in feminine domains, not only are they going into something where they'll be paid less and it won't be valued um, because of the ways in which we patrol and police men to stay in the man box, it means that they'll get a lot of you know, pushback from other men about not being quote unquote real men. And how constraining is that? I mean, at the end of the day, at least women get to go into masculinized occupations and certainly will face backlash and will face criticism. Um, but we don't face anything remotely like the threat and the Ridicule that men face from other men when they engage in feminine actions.
0: Right, it's difficult, but at least it's admired versus
1: versus completely shut down, dismissed, and used as a, a moment to degrade men. I think our film "The Mask You Live In" has been such a profound, um, you know, influence in the lives of young men because they find out, oh, this isn't natural. Like these are rules that are just put on me, and they also find out that they're not alone you know, in, in in sixth or seventh grade when they're feeling all this pressure from other boys to, to lower their voices and to act more aggressively than they feel comfortable acting and to shut off their emotions and the parts of their life that they enjoyed, like maybe music or theater or creative performance where they're, you know, they're encouraged to not, you know, girls have cooties, they're encouraged to to reject women or girls unless they're sex objects, all of that, like that's a painful, painful process for boys where you, we're, we as a culture literally literally stripping away aspects of their humanity and asking them to be less human in order to be more of a man and there's something really wrong with our culture if that's how we define what it means to be a man i love that last line and i got here um i think primarily because I had a very sexist, patriarchal father. And I, I actually grew up um, Pentecostal evangelical. And for folks who don't know what that religion is, um, it's a religion that, that is very uh, kind of gender stereotypical, so, for example, um, I wasn't allowed to cut my hair or wear pants as a child. Um, I was also homeschooled, and so I wasn't allowed to um, talk to boys, let alone fraternize with them or be friends with them. Um, I also wasn't allowed to speak in church. Uh, I was allowed, however, to read um, you know, things I could get my hands on that my my aunties and different people in my life were slipping to me in order to kind of challenge maybe some of the the ideas and messages I was learning in the home about what it means to be a girl or a woman. Um, and my, my awakening was actually when I received Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, as a child. And uh, the book really goes into feminism and the idea of gender inequality in society, and how because we value boys and men more, and we think of them as natural leaders, that girls and women end up getting left behind and being treated like second-class citizens. And so I remember getting um, the Feminine Mystique and uh, sharing a lot of these lessons in Sunday school with the girls I was teaching, Um, kind of secretly, obviously, because it was a challenge to everything that we were learning from the preacher at the pulpit. Um, I came from a very rigid um, religious background and ended up uh, doing a 180 degree turn uh, when, you know, I got my hands on materials that told me that I didn't have to be a second class citizen.
0: I love that that kind of just really reinforces the idea that knowledge is what holds the power and in kind of b- what both of us are trying to do through media to diffuse that knowledge and be able to reach more people with it so that they can hopefully have these same experiences as you. Absolutely. You mentioned being homeschooled, and I'm wondering how do you think, how hard was that to make that transition um and kind of realize that what you had learned or or hadn't learned due to being kind of protected from it went against everything maybe your family thought or you had thought yourself. Um, and especially, I wonder what you think, because a lot of people are homeschooled or protected, overprotected, but it often has this kind of counter effect that almost seems ironic in the sense that it's always you know the people who go to college and party the hardest and are drinking the most are the people who were never (laughs) allowed to before so I don't know to kind of point out the the ineffectiveness of strategies like that
1: I think it's incredibly ineffective for parents to try to shape the behavior of their children, given that it's such a losing battle with mass media. Um, Children now spend more time engaging with social media and entertainment media than they do with their parents. Um, They also spend more time engaging with media than they do even with homework and classroom uh, time. So uh, we know now that uh, 10.4 hours per day um, is spent intermittently on you know consuming media for young people. And so this has, um, I think, a bigger effect in shaping the way in which they view the world than their parents, uh, than educators. Um, and it intensifies the peer pressure, right? Because you're dealing a lot with social media, and so um, you are putting yourself out there, but also being judged by your peers in ways that are much more structured now with social media. But at the end of the day, it really is a losing battle, and it's nothing that you know is planned per se it's it's much more about um you know marketers and and entertainment media producers trying to reach an audience um but at the end of the day it means that media essentially has more power to shape the hearts and minds of young people than parents or educators
0: i'm still a bit in shock by the from the 10.4 hours and that kind of the the reality of that
1: um And that's oftentimes. I should note that that's a cumulative. Oftentimes, it's happening all at once. So you're on your phone, you're watching, you know, something on Netflix or Hulu on your laptop, um, and then maybe you you have your iPad out and you're looking at your Instagram account. So it's not. It's it's happening simultaneously. It's like,
0: oh, what'd you do? Oh, he's just chilling, hanging out Uh as if it's a casual, (laughs) non-stressful. That's (laughs)
1: unstressful. It it has become a way of life for young people, right? Their media consumption is, um, I think, the biggest shift from previous generations. Um, And it's especially uh, troubling. And I'm not alarmist about social media. I think I see the good and bad. But it's especially troubling that we've introduced this new technology um, for humans, which has profound effects that we simply don't know the outcome of, right? Mm -hmm. So we know, for example, that young people... um, are more reclusive and antisocial, and they're having less sex. All of which are a function of engagement with social media um, and the norms and values and, and ways in which they're learning to interact, because they're interacting more with technology oftentimes than humans. Um, and so there are a lot of studies out now finding that you know the social media engagement of young people and being raised and basically being born into this world where using social media is like breathing. um, It has profound human effects that we don't really understand, you know, the short term, medium term or long term effects of. Um, I love the fact that it provides this medium to shape hearts and minds because it holds the potential to, Produce a much better culture if we were to infuse it with those values, but at the end of the day, the values that young people are getting are coming from people who are trying to sell them products, and so uh, those values are are not really going to lead to the gender justice or socially just utopia that I can imagine.
0: Right, especially not with the power of the, as was recently mentioned in one of my interviews, uh, half of trillion dollar industry of beauty. Um. I think one of my friends the other day, one of my favorite places um, in Marin, the Ridge, where I used to go often, there was nobody there. And recently when I go there, it's kind of packed. And I began to realize that I think a lot of it is because of social media. And I would go there and it's this beautiful sunset. And there are a lot of really young people who are just on their phone or even facing the other direction, taking the selfies and... I went with a friend and she commented how glad she was that when she was a young like high schooler she only had to struggle very intensely trying to figure out who she was but didn't have to also worry about what other version of her she wanted to be on social media because it's so hard as it is alone um you mentioned this kind of intimacy crisis which You know with the cover story on the atlantic a couple months ago and a lot of kind of um mainstream media companies really kind of catching on and beginning to shed more light on this um i was wondering if you could kind of speak to that intimacy crisis in the younger generation but then on the other hand i do wonder because a lot of people seem very preoccupied by these negative consequences If there are also kind of some more positive ones and that this younger generation perhaps does have a certain perspective or knowledge about gender politics this sort of thing that you know it's not all bad and they actually might have a leg up in some other sense
1: I would say there's no doubt that Generation Z, which is defined as being now 24 years old and younger, um, is much more conscious about the social construction of gender, meaning that um, you know that the categories that we impart on men and women, you know, masculine and feminine, that those things shift over time and over culture in a way that indicates that we, as human beings, kind of decide those categories rather than those categories coming from nature or being predetermined. And so you saw you. See see, um, as a result of that, you see an increasing amount of gender fluidity. So, for example, um, over half of Generation Z, so 56% identify either as gender fluid or as sexually fluid, meaning that they're not identifying as, um, you know, male, female, they're not identifying as, um, as heterosexual and homosexual, it's, um, they are identifying as something that crosses categories. And that's really exciting. And it, it is a direct result, I think, of, of social media and entertainment media being much more open to the idea um, of gender fluidity and, and sex, you know, sexuality fluidity. I think it, it gets us closer to where the world actually is, and it, it frees us up from the constraints of these socially constructed categories that aren't just innocuous categories, right? They've been put into place in order to maintain hierarchies. Because as soon as you put um, people into categories, Um, you tend to rank them in your mind. So especially, you know, two categories, like dichotomous categories, like male, female, heterosexual, homosexual, uh, you know, black, white, you end up immediately, um, you know, putting them in a hierarchy, um, which is what human beings do with categories. And so it's really great to see Generation Z challenging that, and and that has so much to do with the media landscape that they're exposed to. Um, They are also, um, Generation Z is also more um, socially conscious and socially aware beyond gender justice and beyond gender fluidity than previous generations. Um, they're more activist. They're more concerned about things like climate change and racial injustice. Um, they're also far more likely than any previous generation to know what the term intersectionality means, um, which which is simply means that whatever category of oppression or marginalization you happen to be looking at, let's say gender, it means un- that you understand that that category doesn't operate alone so for example um you know the the wage gap um for um asian american women um it's 88 cents to a man's uh white man's dollar um for white women it's 81 cents to a white man's dollar um for all women it's 78 cents to a white man's dollar Um, for black women it's 65 cents and for latinx women um it's 54 cents to a white man's dollar so um young people understand the importance of of something like unpacking the category of woman to say well actually it also it's not just women it differs by race and so intersectionality is something that uh, generation z really owns and a majority of young people know what that term means and that's really important because it means they understand the complexity of oppression and marginalization um, and understanding that complexity is actually the first step in truly addressing it
0: Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you like what you're listening to, please take just 1 minute to rate and more specifically, to write a review of our podcast. And if you want more content like this, be sure to follow us on Instagram where we post awesome stories, do Q&As and takeovers with experts and have links to sign up for our digital book club, which is actually a weekly content curation. Join us and follow us to help us change the conversation and the culture. Surrounding intimacy and relationships. Lastly, we're looking for awesome people who are excited about what we're doing. So if you or anyone you know is interested in collaborating, helping out, or working for BBXX, shoot me an email at Sasha, that's S A S Z A, at BBXX.world. Thanks for joining us as we work to change the culture and the conversation surrounding intimacy and relationships. That's all back to the show now. I wonder in terms of you mentioned that they are greater activists and how much that is advanced and empowered versus inhibited by the large presence online. Because as much as social media and all of this has the power to start revolutions, it also kind of only goes so far and it's quite easy to believe oneself to be an activist when you post all these things but really the effort it takes you know to dedicate one of however many things a person might post within a single day to something activism related um but not really back that up with their real world real
1: world conversations nor actions etc yeah that's a great way of thinking about that um The beauty of Generation Z is that they are more active than previous generations, um, certainly millennials and Generation X, when it comes to both real-world activism, meaning attending protests and voting when they're old enough, as well as kind of the armchair activism, which would be the online activism. Um, But as somebody who studies different types of activism, the term armchair activism is typically used to kind of dismiss the impact or power of social media activism. But what we do know is that, you know, for lack of... uh, to be really simple, money makes the world go round. And so what social media has given young people is a an incredibly powerful tool for activism in the form of consumer activism. So even though um, consumer activism, which is boycotts and boycotts and those sorts of things, um, even though boycotts and boycotts have been around really before the founding of our nation, they have never been more effective than they are today. Meaning that young people um, are much more likely to go after companies for political reasons uh, because they can and they have this powerful tool online to do it and so they're holding corporations accountable in a new way which is why any any corporation worth its salt is now hiring people to basically try to manage um, young people who will come after their product or their brand online for political reasons. So young people, even though it's armchair activism, actually have an incredible amount of power online. Um, but it does lead to a lack of intimacy, and it also leads to incredible pressure to be someone who you are not and to perform a curated self, as I call it. Um, and those pressures are enormous. I mean, we've always had girls who, you know, we, we've raised girls in this country for a very long time to hate their bodies. Um, But that is way more intense with social media. Um, where you have the before and after you have you know three years ago you have this constant you have a structure that encourages you to compare yourself to who you were previously and to compare yourself to other people um, we also have a lot of apps that allow you to make yourself literally perfect so you see these people around you who are smoothing things and shaping things and it's having a profound effect in the real world and that we now know that that the rate of people having hand surgery so it looks good on instagram has increased. Um, the rate of, of surgeries have gone up simply so people look better online. Um, and that, th- those stats are, are startling. Um, my interest is in changing the culture that encourages girls and women to hate their bodies. I have nothing but um, empathy for, um, for women who feel pressure. Buy, kind of buy into the larger culture that says that their bodies are their primary value and for girls and women who go under the knife and risk their lives in order to appear more you know, sexually attractive. So at the end of the day, when people say, I'm doing this for me, so I feel sexy. Okay, well, there's a huge difference between being sexy and being sexual, right? Being sexy is for other people. Being sexual is for yourself. Um,
0: I think it's important to distinguish exactly what you said the difference between, well, oh, this is something that will make you feel good about yourself. But if that means taking away your capacity to feel good in the sense of pleasure or even on the sense of inside, not on a surface level, Instagram level, but truly like being connected to oneself is generally what helps someone feel good about themselves and trying to really help people understand the difference and I loved the comment you said about the deserted island and is this really a choice people would make otherwise and while they might truly believe that it is their choice that's only because so much information and and media and everything in our culture has managed to kind of seep its way into our minds without us even realizing
1: we definitely take in the idea that our bodies are a primary form of value well before we're conscious of being conscious. And that uh, the idea of being conscious about the fact that you are a human being who is conscious happens somewhere between ages you know, seven and 10. And by the time you're seven years old, you already have a worldview. You have you know, your social DNA already reflects what the broader culture tells you. I wanna live in a culture actually that doesn't tell uh, girls and women that they have to be beautiful. I think that yardstick is the most damaging thing that we have in our culture, um, this pursuit of beauty. Um, I wanna li- live in a culture that actually values girls and women for what they do and not what they look like, especially when um, the standards for feeling good about yourself are impossible to obtain. So not only is is the standard itself really not meritorious, it's not about what you do, but it's about you know th- basically what you're born into the world with, It also is completely unobtainable, right? And so even women who look like they've obtained it are still really, really unhappy. And then of course there's the caveat that every woman's going to age and get older if she has the luxury of living a long life, right? And so it's literally a game that is rigged against us so that we are never happy in our own skin. And we spend the amount of time that it takes to get two PhDs over the course of our lifetime worrying about what we look like. And so that's the world we're born into. I, I wanna get rid of the, in, the whole idea that, that beauty is a measure for anything.
0: What do you think should be the the yardstick we should measure girls and women by or perhaps humans in general? Because I think a lot of people might be wondering, oh, well, yardstick for men, yardstick for women, or should it just be one yardstick
1: for humans? It should definitely be one yardstick for humans. I'm always suspicious when different standards are used for men and women in the same way I'm suspicious when different standards are used for white people versus people of color. Um, you know, I... Anytime there are different standards used for different groups, it makes me wonder how that's contributing to the hierarchy of those groups. So, yes, we should definitely have one standard. And I would love that standard to be multifaceted. I would love it to be um, certainly, you know, how hard you work and what you're producing in the world, and by how hard you work, uh, not everybody has the same abilities. So um, it would really be a measure of, um, you know, what you are producing creatively or otherwise in the world based upon what you are working with. but it would certainly be based on, on something meritorious like your effort, like your work, um, like the, the empathy that you show for other people. So kindness as a yardstick would be incredible. That would revolutionize the world if we valued people based upon the amount of empathy that they showed to other people, based upon the amount of service they performed for other people and other groups, um, or even based upon you know more traditional things like productivity and, and work. Um, although I, you know, there's some there's some issues there because of differences in ability, but um, I, it would be meritorious. It wouldn't be something as as surface uh, and skin deep as beauty. Um,
0: yeah, perhaps simply how kind of caring somebody is and their intentions, measured by intention more than natural born merit of any kind
1: yeah, I mean, even even men are held back to to a certain yeah. extent by in their value, their yardstick being right. economic when you consider that, you know, wealth is intergenerational and about fifty percent of of the top one percent inherited their wealth. Um, it's still not a meritorious measure. Um, and it's really heartening when, when people who have incredible wealth privilege note that, right, um, and, then, and then do something about that in the world. But at the end of the day, you know, men's standards are more meritorious than women's standards, but there's still a long way to go mm-hmm. to actually have a system of merit. And so when we talk about, um, you know, rewarding people and, and the United States being this land of opportunity where all you need to do is work hard and get ahead and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, some of us you know don't have boots. Um, it's not, you know, it's a myth, right? It's the essentially the myth of the American dream um, that that's, that everybody can simply move ahead based upon their merit. I would like to move to a system where merit is the yard, you know, meritorious behavior is the yardstick by which we measure humans rather than superficial things that they don't control.
0: I think for men too, part of the issue is that when, you know, you, as you mentioned, are being measured by your income or financial success, not even success in a career, which could by so many other measures not be defined by finances, um, It really leaves you with kind of narrow options if you would otherwise, you know, in a social vacuum or on an island, be pursuing life as an artist or life doing any other job that perhaps wouldn't have the same, if you didn't have those same pressures to really be that provider to be, you know, living up to that, that measuring stick that takes away your freedom to follow your passions or legitimate interests And then, if you end up kind of living in this less kind of connected and more living for other people's standards life, that can only have so many other consequences in terms of, you know, happiness and uh, demeanor, et cetera, that, yeah, kind of feed back into that cycle. Mm -hmm.
1: I imagine a world where humans can achieve their full potential. But it would require a real, a radical change, right? Um, we have allowed marketers and people who are trying to sell us things um, an in- inordinate amount of power over shaping our values, what we value as a culture. And so, what do we value? We value um, wealth. We value competitiveness, and you know, winning. Um, and we value control and aggression. We value very masculine things in our culture. Men and women alike value very masculine things in our culture. And our institutions reflect this. So our institutions being politics, media, uh, education. Um, so the institutions that are socializing one generation to the next are reflecting values that I think are fundamentally incompatible with human happiness and I say they're fundamentally incompatible with human happiness because if you look at the the the, the happiest times in your life um, or the the happiest people um, it's much more about, connectivity and community and empathy and caring Um, we know what makes people happy we now have two decades of of happiness studies right we know what makes people happy Um, there are really two primary things once you have your basic needs taken care of the first is connecting with other human beings um so we know the more close friendships and intimate friendships you have um that you will be happier um we also know um that the other thing that makes people happy is service, right? So the two primary things that make us happy are close connection with other human beings and serving other human beings. So imagine a world premised on that, right? Which is antithetical to consumption and consumerism and marketing and corporatism, right? So um, imagine a world based around Um, serving other human beings and doing your full, um, achieving your full potential and serving them, whether that's art, whether that's project management, whether that's car repair, whatever it is, serving other human beings um, and connecting with other human beings. I think at the end of the day, the biggest um, obstacle to humans achieving human happiness is the fact that we've given over the reins of determining what we value as a society to marketers and to corporations, to entities that are want to sell us something, and so that creates a world in which humans, each successive generation of humans, is less happy than the one before. And we have, you know, now um, fifty years of evidence that shows that young people each successive generation is less happy than the one before and if you want to look at kind of a root or meta cause you would have to look at the values that are being transferred from corporations to human beings which have much more to do with us buying things than they do uh, with human happiness
0: thought back, um, as I had mentioned to you, I just moved back to the US from Chile. And when people say kind of, are you happy to be back? Or what will you miss? Um, Obviously, this is a generalization. But what I say is that the simple life is the good life. And what I realized is that (laughs) life here is impossible to be simple. And there are just so many things that I took away from that experience and that will contribute to the way that I want to live my life. Um,
1: What What weekend long barbecues
0: where you basically like pay no money and don't have to go anywhere and there's no scheduling and you just meet up in a place, you know, in in somebody's backyard or and you just eat good food and hang out with good people and it's just kind of passively you know enables this this happiness that comes from those close relationships and and sharing with those people we care about in a way that doesn't involve you know renting a bus to go wine tasting to pay hundreds of dollars for a couple hours and lots of logistics and effort and stress that doesn't even live up to be that much at the end of it anyway so um Going back to what you said about each generation, as life becomes more complicated, I think it, we lose sight of that. Perhaps the simple life is the good life. The BBXX podcast, "Let's Get Intimate," is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at BBXX.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time.